Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 259 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, uh, today's a fun episode because we are combining a few things that I find really fascinating, and I hope you will too. I think you will as well. One is stand-up comedy. I just have always been fascinated by it, really interested in stand-up comedians for a number of different reasons. Uh, One is... Man, do you know how hard it is to nail a 40-minute set of just joke after joke after joke? Like as a communicator, if you're speaking or preaching, you know, you can stall a little bit. You can you can kind of loop back or whatever. Man, when you're in a stand-up routine, ah, 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 ah. And so we dive into that art. Secondly, today's episode features a young leader. And he's 26 and moved from accounting into stand-up. Yeah, we talk about that. Plus, he's the son of a friend and a previous guest on this podcast, Andy Stanley. So Andrew Stanley is my guest today. And he's going to talk about making a career move, exactly how to put a comedy set together. We're going to hear his story. And he'll talk a little bit about his dad and granddad and parents as well. So it's going to be a great episode. Thanks for joining us. And uh, man... All of you who have subscribed, uh, thank you so much for that. You know, we are just seeing record downloads, uh, massive amounts of feedback on the episodes. And I just want to say thank you. I really do hope they help you lead like never before. And uh, it's fun to have so much variety in the shows as well. We've got Michael Hyatt coming up, Ruth Haley Barton, Nona Jones from Facebook. Also got Les McEwen, Horst Schultze, Sean Cannell from YouTube, and so many others. So good incentive to subscribe. And I would love for you guys to join me in just a few short weeks in Dallas, Texas. The Push Pay Summit is happening May 22nd and May 23rd in Dallas. I'll be joined by some amazing speakers like Patrick Lencioni, Nona Jones. Uh, it's not your typical church conference. At this summit, Push Pay is leading discussions about tactics and strategic steps that set your church up for success. Now, one of the questions I wanted to ask uh, one of their vice presidents, Troy Pollack, is, okay, in an era where you can get content anywhere, why do live events still matter? This is what he had to say. I think that's a great question, honestly. And my response to you, Carrie, is I believe collective wisdom is significantly greater than independent wisdom. And when I'm in a room with like-minded people and I'm getting some of their takeaways and then some of their learnings, that just adds to what I'm taking away personally from the conference as well too. So we have great opportunities for attendees to rub shoulders with other churches um, who are there attending as well too. So people that are in a similar lane or job role setup uh, with people that you would have otherwise not connected with but then also access to some of the speakers and pick their brains and double click on some of the content that they spoke about from platform. We also have breakout sessions where we all, we have a keynote session then followed by a panel and we can take live Q and A from the audience asking practical, tactical type questions. So live events, you can't replace it. I could be alone in my room reading your book and getting a lot from it. But the minute I share that um, information with five, six, seven, eight other people around me, we get this holistic uh, understanding and content takeaway that otherwise is not able not able to happen in an independent fashion. 
So I'm really excited about speaking live at the Push Pace Summit. I'd love to hang out with you. I'm going to be there for the entire event. I would love to meet you, get to know you, and we have an offer for you. So if you head over to pushpay.com forward slash summit and on checkout, use the coupon code CAREYN, C-A-R-E-Y-N, you will not pay $159 to go. You'll get a $70 discount. It goes down to $89 per person. So head on over to pushpay.com forward slash summit. Use the coupon code CARRYN at registration, and I'll see you May 22nd, 23rd in Dallas. Also, hey, staffing is a big issue these days, and a lot of people ask the question, where can I find great people? In fact, when I talk to leaders, that is one of the top questions. Another problem that I see leader after leader having is, I don't have enough help. Uh, I'm trying to do too much of this myself. Well, The solution that I have turned to again and again over the last few years is Belay. Belay is a company that actually curates some of the best virtual assistants, bookkeepers, web developers, and so much else for you. So they do all the interviewing and then they give you candidates that work remote for you. And uh, they have an incredible client list from Michael Hyatt to Damon Johns. I have used Belay for the last few years And it's one of the reasons you get this show and some of the people who work in the background on my team. Head on over to Belay Solutions, that's B-E-L-A-Y solutions.com forward slash carry, and you can learn more and figure out why so many people are turning to Belay to solve their staffing needs. And I got to tell you, I, I absolutely love working with that company, and I think you will too. Well, without further ado, why don't we jump into my conversation with Andrew Stanley. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. It's just great to have you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Man, well, I've been around North Point for a little while and I knew you kind of just casually growing up. And then we were in a green room last September and your dad was right. there. He was speaking at uh, at his event and I was there for another event. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that's Andrew. And you had quit your <laughs> job three days earlier. So right before we saw each other. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, like literally I was hours. Still in a just, yeah, I was still in the just quit my job fog <laughs> of like, what have I done? I remember you said, uh, don't tell my dad I quit my job. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that was a joke. But Yeah, he thinks I'm taking a vacation day to spend the day with him. So he, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Dad, they give me all this vacation. It's amazing. Yeah. Indefinite. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you were, you were in finance, right? And all of a sudden now you're a full-time, like, legit professional stand-up comedian. Not a typical well, journey. <laughs> I guess it's true that I'm now, I'm at least a full-time comedian. When I think professional comedian, I think about the guys that are that are famous. But I guess technically it is my profession now. I mean, someone paid you to do to it, about. right? Like, yeah. isn't that the definition? I'm tricking people into paying me to do this thing that doesn't feel like work. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but it, but it is fun. I uh, like you said. I graduated from Auburn uh, with a finance degree, and like a good boy, went and got my finance job and did that for three years. And then uh, about one year into that job, I decided I wanted to start getting into comedy. So that's where it kind of began. Wow. And like, what area of finance? Because it's not a typical. I have a son who's in finance as well. So it's what like were you doing audit? What were you doing? So yeah, so I was working corporate finance at a big public utility electricity company for the Southeast, um, doing budgeting and financial planning type stuff with them. 
Um, and uh, people always tease me now. They're like, oh, that was a waste of time now that you're a comedian, right? And and in some ways, I guess it kind of was, but I learned so much at that job that I that I use now. And as I'm doing stand-up and kind of managing myself, it really is like a small business. And the stuff, some of the stuff I learned in school and a lot of the stuff I learned working in the corporate world has really served me well. Just being professional and emails and using Excel to keep track of things. So in a roundabout way, all that kind of finance experience kind of helped prepare me for for this comedian thing. So it's uh, it's funny to see the way God uses things. Yeah, you'll be a solvent comedian. Like I'm sure right. that's a rarity. <laughs> right. Well, I think I think I'll be able to go longer without having a manager because I can handle some of that stuff on my own than maybe some of my friends that are comedians and don't have the professional background. It's funny how that goes. I mean, I was in law briefly before I felt a call to ministry and moved into ministry. And people used to ask me when I was at your stage, just starting out, do you ever use your law? And I thought about it in a very direct, like, am I negotiating contracts? Am I suing anybody? And the answer was no, I'm not (laughs) like, sorry. But now I look back on it and that training and that time in that profession changed the way I think. And so now yeah. I say I use it every day, like just very indirectly. I totally believe it. My girlfriend is in law school right now and she always says, you know, we're learning the law, but what they're really, they say they're teaching us is how to think. Yeah. So that totally makes sense to me. I mean, just going through something that difficult is going to make you a stronger person no matter what. Yeah. Do you know what kind of law she wants to practice? That's fun. Um, she either wants to do real estate or corporate. She doesn't want to litigate. She, she um, learned early that she didn't care for that too much. That's like my wife. Uh, she's on the solicitor side, the, the like corporate mm-hmm. side, whereas right. I'm, I'm more the litigator, like bring it on. That'd be fun, oh, which sure. is dangerous and not I good for that. your soul. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I think that one of the things that turned her off to it is that she met so many and they were all divorced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all the, all the people that were on these huge litigations. Rarely were they in their first marriage. And she was like, I don't think that that. <laughs> That's a bad indicator. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. The, uh, the data doesn't lie. <laughs> tell us, tell us about how you got interested in comedy. Like, were you a funny kid? Is this something that were you the class clown or like, how did this spark start with you? Sure. No, I, um, I've i always been a big introvert, so definitely was never the class clown. Uh, I was homeschooled until high school, so I wasn't even, you know, there's only three of us that could have been the class clown for most of my schooling, and uh, it was not me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, I always loved stand From the first time I heard stand-up comedy, I remember the first um, live performance I ever saw was a fundraiser I went with my parents to where Jeff Foxworthy was performing. And I can remember experiencing laughter in like a way that I, you know, I had never laughed so hard that I couldn't stay in my chair before. And I I think, I think Mm -hmm. I must've been around 11 or 12. Um, and then of course, listening to Brian Regan growing up, people like that, I always appreciated stand up comedy, but it's nothing I ever saw or considered doing myself. I never saw that for myself. I never had any desire to try it. What happened was, um, the first kind of taste I got of it was, uh, like I said, I went to Auburn and I, it was in a fraternity and your senior year, you get an opportunity at the end to give a senior speech to everybody in the fraternity and you can say whatever you want. So I decided to just try to write a funny one. And I 
I wrote uh, like superlatives for everyone that was my age that was graduating. So like most likely it's a blank. I think one right. of them was you know, most likely to share a Facebook account with your wife one day. <laughs> Stupid, <laughs> funny things like that. And so I wrote them all down. I, I took a long time. I loved writing them. It was so much fun. And, um, and then I got up there and I just kind of read them, you know, and, and it killed because it's a group of people. Yeah. Everybody knows each other and, you know, you're making inside jokes. So I remember that going really well and being like, wow, that was fun. Um, and, and, and even then I wasn't like, I should try stand up comedy. I was like, Oh, that was really fun. I would love to write comedy. I think I could huh. do that. Um, so graduated soon after that, got my job, um, and just kind of had an itch that I needed to scratch, I think. And I didn't know how I wanted to do comedy in some way. I thought it would be writing. And, um, so about a year into the job, I was talking to my dad and I was like, yeah, I just really think I can do something in this world, but I have no idea where to start. And so he said, well, you should have dinner with Jeff Foxworthy. Because hmm. I had met Jeff a few times. We actually went on a mission trip with his family when I was 12. Um, so we had some connection. And he's been a North Point guy for, for a long time. Um, so I texted Jeff. I was like, hey, Jeff. I kind of told him where I was coming from, asked him to dinner. And he said, absolutely. He met me at California Pizza Kitchen. And I took uh, maybe 11 pictures of him and other people that were at California Pizza Kitchen. <laughs> He, gets, he can't even have a pizza, right? Without and, being stopped. I mean, I remember when we were in Kenya, people were recognizing him in Kenya. It's amazing. Really? He, wow. And it was it was more the other like the European people that were there, not the the Kenyans. But uh, <laughs> it was it was still amazing to be in Nairobi, Kenya, and Jeff Fox with people going redneck guy, redneck guy. Um, but uh, so he was so gracious. He sat down with me, listened to me, and said, "Yeah, I think that's great." And he uh, ended up connecting me with a guy. He didn't even think I should do stand-up comedy. He didn't even, that didn't come up. He, uh, he recommended that I get in contact with a guy that what he would use, um, for writing projects. If he's ever on like a game show or something and right. he has people helping him come up with stuff. So he connected me with this guy. I started emailing this guy in Nashville and he's this guy's named Scott. And, uh, he said, uh, all right, I'd love to help you, but I'm only going to help you if you write five minutes of jokes and go do the meta note, stand-up comedy open mic. And I said, oh, well, I'll just find someone else to help me then because that is not <laughs> anything I'm interested in. And he said, uh, and he said, no, well, don't worry. You know, like, I'll help you. Um, you send me the jokes. I'll make sure you're not going to make a fool of yourself. Right. And so I said, all right, I'll at least write the jokes. And then like, if, I, if I like them, then maybe we can talk about going up. But I said, all right, I'm at least going to write them and then we can go from there because I don't want to lose this guy's from helping me. So I took a couple of months and uh, to start writing some jokes. I went. I'd never been to a stand-up comedy open mic before, so I went to the club, the Laughing Skull Lounge by my house, which um, is a uh, is not a uh, not a lot of clean comedians yeah. hitting the stage there for open mic night. So I went just to watch with some friends, and it's twenty comedians doing five minutes each. It was over two, about two hours, right. and um, I remember leaving thinking, okay, well, I wouldn't be the worst one. <laughs> because you know and so the, an open mic like that the, the first five of the guys are excellent and have been doing it a long time and are great and then there's five people trying it for the first time that are you know trying it for the first time and then there's 10 people that are somewhere in the middle that usually are the filthiest ones and don't get any reaction they're just sometimes comedians will get up and they just want any reaction even if it's right. not laughter they'll go for a gasp it will bring them just mm -hmm. as much joy shock as value getting yeah. a laugh exactly shock value so i remember leaving that in in a weird way encouraged because i was like okay i could i could 
I would not be memorably bad among this group. <laughs> I'm not going to be anybody's topic of conversation on the ride home after this thing. So I uh, kept working on the jokes and Scott was so helpful to me. He was kind of, you know, telling me why certain things should go before they're talking about order and joke structure. And he recommended some podcasts for me to listen to. Um, and so I went, um, you had to schedule a day to do the open mic. You have to email, they have a really long waiting list at that club. So I had like a month where I knew the date and it was leading up to it. So, um, I was practicing, you know, every chance I could get just in the shower in my room. And, um, I went and it, and it went okay. It wasn't, um, I was so nervous that I couldn't remember it afterwards. I kind of blacked out, but I had the recording and heard that I got at least a couple of little laughs in there. But, um, and the, 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 the thing was that I thought, okay, my jokes were good, but my delivery was bad. Like I need to do better. I thought, okay, these jokes can, I can work on, but so I kind of kept wanting to do better. So I kept signing up for that open mic every two or three weeks, um, and did that about about six times, I think, before I started to get asked to do other stuff around Atlanta because it was going it was going well. Um, so I started kind of going to some other open mics and meeting other comedians and getting booked on shows and uh, doing that for several months and then started getting opportunities to do stuff at church, which I never wanted to do. I never wanted to be on stage <laughs> at church. You know, people yeah. had asked me my whole life if that's what I was going to end up doing, and I always said, absolutely not. Right. Um, but this was kind of a fun way to, to even explore that. And... Um, and so it kind of spiraled out of control from there. <laughs> that's a, that's pretty amazing, though. So I mean, the first spark, like, hey, that 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 frat graduation thing. Yeah. How, how many years ago was that? So that would have been 2015. Pretty recent, like to discover this whole vein. No, and this was just not on my radar at all. And I'm so incredibly indebted and thankful to Scott Dunn, the guy that mm. Jeff connected that didn't know me just emailing with me challenged me to do this thing that would become the thing that I love to do. So, so grateful to him. And of course that's, we know that's, that's a God thing too, but it's funny. I've gotten to go to Nashville and hang out with him a few times now and get to know him. And his son is starting to do stand up now. He's in high school. So I'm helping his son a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's just been fun to see the way it's all worked out. Well, and it's pretty incredible. I mean, even in that green room that day in November or whenever it was last fall, the fall of 2018, you had said, I think I've got enough ahead of me that I can responsibly quit my job and, and try this. And now you're completely booked, like not indefinitely, but I mean, you have night after night after night of work. I mean, you're in a different city every night. It's been pretty incredible. What what causes that kind of quick rise in the world of comedy? Sure. It's a, it's definitely a combination of several things. Um, and, uh, some of them are just me being lucky about the family I was born into and the opportunities that that's led to for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've kind of had so to learn. I'm sure I'll say time. this in the intro, but if you guys are wondering, um, do you want to tell everybody who your father is and grandfather? Oh, is? sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My dad is, uh, Andy Stanley and my granddad is Dr. Charles Stanley. So that helps a little bit. And your mom, don't forget your mom. She's and my awesome mom. Yes, yeah, she's in, she's in seminary. She right gave now. you half she's of your routine. Books. I mean, the whole homeschooling yeah. bit. Like, yeah, I talk about my mom a lot. And one day I sat down. and I was like, I hey, something subconscious going on. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have uh, the the whole family act yeah. quite a bit. So that that place is it. But that's not a guarantee. I mean, not every child of a famous person becomes no. well known in their own right or, or it's 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 it may be a, a leg in but it's 
not always a guarantee. So, okay, back exactly. to the question. How did, so you said it helps to be, to have the family connections I have for sure. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, I have to be funny no matter what. Like you said, I, yeah. can, I can get my foot in the door with maybe somebody that wants to book Andy Stanley's son, but I have to deliver to get asked back into mm-hmm. it. Honestly, doing comedy when it doesn't go well is worse than anything in the world. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So I don't want to show up to stuff that I'm not ready for. So the the big part was working hard in the clubs and the in the rooms where no one cares or knows who I am, making sure that I am funny. And then taking it to stages where maybe I do have a little bit of a pull and people are interested to hear me because they know who my family is. But the, the main way that um, that those connections have helped me is that they put me on big stages in front of people that make decisions about booking stuff like or very early on, way too soon early on. I got to introduce my dad at Catalyst Conference mm-hmm. in Atlanta after I'd been doing stand up for less than a year. I think, which is horrifying to think back now. I would, I would hate to go listen to my recording. I would be so critical of it, I'm sure. But, but that got my foot into a lot of doors. Um, that I'm still booking gigs from the children of of that and the grandchildren of that. Um, and people the who were in the room more, at that point. People yeah. who were in the room exactly. And then I do shows with them, and then those shows lead to more shows. So it kind of, it kind of trees down into one big show can end up being a whole year of stuff for me. Um, and then I got to do orange conference as well, which was yeah. just as big, if not, if not bigger in terms of people booking me after that. Um, so, so blessed and lucky to kind of have had those opportunities. Um, but also had to work really hard to be funny enough to take advantage of the opportunities, which is what I have to remind myself of whenever I feel like I'm a fraud for getting, <laughs> for getting all this <laughs> stuff so fast. Well, and what I mean, I've, I've I've seen you work, I've seen your routine, and I, I mean, I'm I'm I've communicated my whole life. I'm always in awe of stand-up comedians because if you're in the middle of a 40-minute keynote, like I'm I'm speaking at South by Southwest this weekend, you know, awesome. There, there's room for me to fake stuff. Like if I if I lose my place, you can sort mm-hmm. of skip back, but like even the writing is so clean. I mean, you can surf off a key point for a long time as a preacher or communicator. You can stall a little bit, but you look at how much content is even in a 15-minute set, let alone a whole night. What's your what's your act at this point? Are you up to 40 minutes of content, an hour of content? Yeah, my act now is about 40 minutes. So I'm adding to that wow. in, in real time as we go, but that's about as long as I'll let somebody pay me to do. <laughs> So how many jokes or bits would there be in a 40-minute set? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so bits probably from, it's different for every comedian. Some comedians can do one joke for 20 minutes and some people yeah. are 20 seconds. But for me, um, it's, that'd be probably be, my average joke is two minutes long. So probably 20, 20 bits. Yeah. So um, 20 bits that minutes. are connected to each other. They're not random funny things. Right? Is there a sequence? <laughs> I try to try to connect them. And yeah, it's fun. And as comedians, we kind of call it our act. You know, once the mm-hmm. jokes kind of come together to be a big performance, we call it our act. So, you know, when you're starting out, you're just writing jokes. And then kind of over time, you learn the order that they fit best in. And they kind of flow and transition well in. Um, and I still tweak things every now and then when I have new jokes, sometimes I have to move other stuff around. But, um, but as a comedian, the more you can make that flow and kind of feel like one coherent speech rather than just a bunch of jumbled topical jokes, um, the better. And comedians all have different styles and approach it differently. And sometimes jumping around from topic to topic is funnier 
for some comedians. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've tried to make my act as much about myself as I can. So I'm trying to kind of tell a story, but, um, at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of jokes I've learned to tell in the order that gets the most laughter. Yeah. And is there, okay. Cause I'd really like to break down sort of the art and the science of comedy and stand up and joke writing mm-hmm. and, and all of that with you. So tell me why order matters. Like you can, you're, what you're saying is if you have five jokes, if you do them one, two, three, four, five, it could be funny. But if you go one, four, two, three, five, it could kill the set. Like, is it that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it totally depends on where I am too. Like I said, I'm doing comedy clubs all the time where the only clean comedian there. And that can be different than me showing up at first Baptist of South Georgia or wherever I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I kind of cater to, to where I'm going to be, but, but like you said, the order really does matter. I think for me, what I've learned is that the more I can introduce myself at the beginning and let them know where I'm coming from, the more they're going to enjoy my jokes later because they're hearing them through the filter of who I am. So the first joke I ever wrote, which I still tell it's been changed a lot, but I talk about being homeschooled a lot at the beginning of my set because that gives the audience, whether they're a church crowd or a club crowd or brewery or wherever I am, that kind of gives them a filter to hear me through. It's like, okay, this guy was homeschooled. So everything we hear is coming from a homeschooler's perspective. And there's all these preconceived, you know, stereotypes about homeschoolers that everyone kind of understands. So it's, it's an easy way for me to introduce myself and tell them a lot about myself without having to really tell them very much. (laughs) So the more I can talk about myself and how I was raised in the beginning of my act, I've learned that my jokey jokes towards the end are more successful when I'm telling stories. Right. Um, and then as comedians and, and you can use this in, in, in preaching or any kind of speech or communication is we have, you know, callbacks. So if I tell a joke early on and it kind of people forget about it a little bit and then in another joke, I can all of a sudden bring that back in that can get an even bigger laugh. Um, so I always want to make sure I have, if I have callbacks in my act, I need to make sure I'm doing those in the right order. I can't do the callback before I tell the joke that it's right. callback to. All right. So can you like give it. us an example? Cause I've heard you do that. The callback you, you on your homepage and it may be different by the time people hear this, you do this long sure. 20 minute set, you do a callback at the end and it got a huge laugh. Just oh, give sure. us an example. So yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. So that's one, that's definitely one that I do a lot. So it, um, so the beginning of my act now I talk about being homeschooled and I talk about how it was hard basically. And I make it sound, I make it, I, I exaggerate how hard it was and how it's made my life, you know, more difficult. And then at the end I'm talking about my mom. Um, and this has been kind of my closing joke for a long time now. I'm talking about my mom and how instead of sending her to a nursing home one day, I think I'm just going to frame her for a crime and let her go to prison. My last joke is usually, but if, at the end of the day, I don't think that's unfair. I didn't get to go to real school. She doesn't get to go to a real nursing home. So that would be an example of a callback. And I kind of like to end where I began with the homeschool stuff. And it kind of ties it up and usually is a good way to end it. But um, but some some comedians are so good at just putting that kind of stuff throughout their whole hour. Um, and it's constantly learning and trying to make connections between jokes to figure out how to do that without overdoing it. Um, and still surprise the audience with them. But and are those things you learned from Scott and from some of the other people who have mentored you or trained you or that kind of thing? Sure. So Scott was so helpful, um, and I'll still send him sets every once in a while. Usually, when I'm doing a set, I'll put my phone on the stool and record it so I can go back and listen to it. And a lot of times, I'll send those to Scott just to 
let him hear what he's created. He, uh, I've had so many people help me along the way. It's hard to remember where I even heard individual things. One of the things Scott pointed me towards um, at the very beginning it was a great podcast that I would love to recommend to anybody um, called The School of Laughs Podcast with comedian Rick Roberts. He's another Nashville guy. And um, he's been doing it a long time. And he basically, it's if you want to start stand-up comedy, like he goes through basically, it's like a online course where he's got an episode of like what you should and shouldn't wear. Here's how you do a callback. Here's how you talk to the crowd without messing up your set. And just, you know, very practical things you might not think about when you're first starting. So oh, I'll have to listen. Yeah. Great. Especially if you go back towards the beginning of uh, now he's doing a lot of interviews with comedians, but back towards the beginning when he started the podcast, it was a lot of just lessons. Um, so that helped me a ton and is where I learned a lot of, of that kind of, comedian jargon and technique. Oh, that's good. Now that's super helpful. So what are some do's and don'ts of comedy writing? And then I want to talk about delivery. And I, it's so funny. I feel so unqualified to be the person you're interviewing about the art of comedy because I know so many people have been doing it so much longer. But um, do's and don'ts for writing. I think I think the, the biggest thing I've learned um, from working, you know, clean shows and not clean shows and it's just what people are the funniest when they write the most true to themselves when they're being their most mm. authentic selves and the way they write and the way they're performing is when the audience is going to connect the most. So if I got up there and started talking about all this crazy stuff and tried to be, you know, if I tried to be Anthony Jeselnik or one of the, another Bill Hicks or somebody on stage, it would be inauthentic and it wouldn't work for me. Um, and at the same time, a lot of my comedian friends that are not clean um, it's funny when they try to be clean, it comes out across as not very authentic because <laughs> right. I mean, when you're, when you're really writing in the vein of who you are is when you're going to be the most successful. So I think that's the best place to start is if you're trying to write comedies, think about, all right, what is my perspective on this topic, whatever I want to write about and try to make it as much your voice as you can. Where do you find the humor? I mean, I've heard that, that comedy is noticing Right. And so you're making all these observations that everybody kind of knows about homeschoolers and making fun of yourself and uh, sure. making fun of of the things that have happened in your life. Like what is how do you know how do you find a joke in in moments? Yeah, no, it's hard. And I would love to know the answer to that. Um, <laughs> well, you've done it. Uh, I mean, you got a 40 well, minute set. And sometimes I'll have a week where I feel like I got four new jokes that I'm excited about. And then I'll go a month with, with just really not finding anything I can get a hold of and get to work. Um, the technique that I've used that I've had the most success with is really, I just have a, a note on my phone. And anytime I think of something funny, I will just write it down quickly. And I don't need to write the joke right then. But I, you know how easy it is to, as a writer to think of something. But okay, I'll remember that. And then you go back the next day and think, what was that thing I was trying to... Oh, yeah. So it's the worst feeling in the world. You're like, I really was excited about that. And now I don't remember. So I, uh, I immediately, anytime I have a thought of or a topic or a premise I want to write about, I will write it down. And then sometime that week I will find a good, hopefully more than once a week, but I'll find time to sit down, look through my notes, pick one of those topics that I wrote about and try to put it into a joke. And the thing with stand up comedy is there's no way to practice except for in front of a live audience. You can't, it's not like a band that can go practice in a garage until they get it right and then go show it to people. If I think of a joke, I've got to go try it on stage that night. And if it's a minute and a half long, 
maybe 30 seconds of it was good the first time. Hmm. So that's why I have my phone on the stool recording so I can go back and okay, the part that I thought was going to work really didn't work. But this other thing I said offhand got a big laugh. So let's build a joke around that instead and go back the next night. Um, having edited from the last night and just kind of whittling it down until you're, you're using your words as efficiently as possible and uh, getting the most laughs out of that topic that you can and adding more on top. The other term that we use as comedians is tags. We have um, kind okay. of a setup and then a punchline and then a tag. And so a setup punchline is kind of obvious what that is. You're setting up your premise, explaining what you need to explain, and then your punchline is the funny part. And then the tag is maybe another funny part. And then another, you can have as many tags as you want. So if I have a punchline, I try to think of as many tags as I can, get on stage and see which ones work. And then all the ones that work, I want to keep because I want to push that joke as far as it'll go. Can you give us an example? I mean, I've talked to John Acuff about comedy before. I think it might've even been on this podcast. I've had so many conversations with him. And he said when he's coached me on like delivering humor, He's uh-huh. like, oh man, there were like five more places you could have taken that joke. Right. So, yeah. And I think he must have been talking about tags because he does that really well. So what would be an example sure. of a tag in a joke? Sure. So um, let me think. Um, okay. So a joke I've been telling lately as it relates to homeschool, I talk about how I, um, I was homeschooled for 10 years and then my mom and my parents put me in public high school. I say, because I guess they stopped loving me. Um, and then the joke is I say, you know, I think if you grow up in regular school, you learn all the bad words gradually. In the ninth grade, I learned them all on the first day. And then the tag is in the same conversation. And then the other tag is with the lunch lady. (laughs) So you can kind of just keep piling on as much stuff as you can until the laughter goes away. (laughs) Um, but then what it sounds like John was talking about, maybe different from that, he may be talking about more just taking a premise and exploring different angles on it, um, which is what the really good comedians do. And that's how you get like a 10 minute bit. Um, some comedians that are great at that, like Mike Birbiglia, if you ever listen to him, his whole mm-hmm. hour will be one story with a lot of tangents and he ties it all together at the end. Um, and then there's guys like Gary Goldman, who's excellent. Um, and he'll take a premise and he, I think he has like a 12 minute bit about cookies or something like that and different types of cookies. And he's just literally saying, all right, well, what if we thought about it this way? And so he's writing a joke that probably maybe four minutes, I, I don't know, but he probably started that joke with a small version and started thinking, all right, how much can I squeeze out of this topic of cookies? And let's think of every angle that's might be funny about cookies. Um, so that's probably more what John was talking about is if you're making a joke about right. being homeschooled, come at it from every angle you can think of and squeeze as much juice out of it as you can, because at the end of the day, you need to be able to fill as much time on stage as you can and turn over as much material as, as you can make money. Can you walk us? And I'm sure it varies, you know, you're on the road a lot, but walk us through how you would write a joke. Like it's, it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of us, you have a lot of communicators listening and I always try to say one or two things that I'm not a comedian, I'm a communicator, but like, you know, that kind of, Comedy connects, and particularly if you're talking about something really controversial like money or sex or whatever, I, I always say you have to have a laugh. Like, you just have to. Somewhere in the service, somewhere in the right. message, you got to crack people up because it disarms them. So, but writing those can sometimes take more time than other parts Definitely. of the message or the talk. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and have a funny speaker makes all the difference. Um, mm. 
it makes a difference between a memorable speech and, and, and even if the content was just as good, I feel like I always remember a, a speech or a sermon or a speech that had more more humor. One of the things that um, pretty much every comedian would tell you and is a great tip for a speaker that's trying to be funny is put the funniest part. If you're making a joke, put the funny word or the funny part at the very end. That's how we think about mm-hmm. punchlines is we're setting it up. And then we want the last word we say to be the one that makes the crowd laugh. We don't want them to start laughing too early. Like it, the, the quickest example I can think of, of just this, my one of my opening lines would for an act for my set would be, um, if I seem uncomfortable up here, it's not because I'm nervous. It's because I was homeschooled. Right. And so the, the laugh comes at homeschooled. But if I reordered that and said, um, I was homeschooled, if you were wondering why I seem uncomfortable up here, that's not as that's not going to get that might get still get laughs, but the laughs aren't going to all be at the exact same part. Everybody's not going to know exactly where to laugh. The more you can tell someone people want to laugh hmm. is one of the things I've learned. They nobody is up unless you're in like a weird situation of like a, or like a men's conference. Um, like people <laughs> want to laugh. Um, so if you can tell them when to laugh, they will. So the more you can arrange your words to to let them know it is okay to laugh right now and not have to wonder like oh was he being funny so the the more I'm, I'm rambling now but basically if you no, can put the good. funniest part at the end you're going to get a more coherent unified laugh you mentioned earlier that you will uh, you know write a new joke and you deliver it and it didn't quite work the way you thought but then you said something in the moment that made it really funny yeah how how do you like a lot of us get one shot at a message, you know, for those who are preachers. Right. And so is there any way to sort of predict how those things will land or where it will land or what to do to not that comedy is a goal. It's just like comedy is really hard to do well. It's really sure. hard to do well. So I'm just curious with all these tips. And it is such an advantage that, that we have as comedians over maybe a speaker that's going to give a speech one time is that we get to do it and then edit it. And there's no, uh, there's no open mic for, you know, preaching. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Or maybe that's what doing the middle school room is for. But yeah. it's hard. It's hard for me still to know, you know, the first time I tell a joke, what's going to work. I, I have where I think it's going to happen. And the more experience I get in comedy, the more accurate I can be predicting what's going to happen. But um, but it really is trial and error. I think the more the more you incorporate humor into what you're doing, the more comfortable you get with it, and yeah. the more you understand how to be funny in your voice, and the more often you're going to be able to predict. All right, this will get a laugh if I pause here, or this will I can steer this into what I want. But it's tough. It's tough when you're trying something for the first time to anticipate what an audience is going to do, unless you're really familiar with that audience or you've told the joke before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about delivery. I mean, that is, so if you have 20 jokes or 20 bits over a 40 minute set, sequence, mm-hmm. timing, all of that is important. How do you learn your set? Like, do you memorize it? Do you, uh, how do you, how do you do that? Again, that's probably different for everyone. Some people I know like to go on stage without a plan. They're just so good at thinking on their feet and doing improvisational stuff that they can kind of have, all right, I'm probably going to tell these three jokes at some point, but they just go up there. And, um, and Bill Hicks even used to tell people, um, your act is what you do when you have nothing else to say. It <laughs> was a really? quote from him. So he would say, get up there and be yourself as long as you can. And then when you got nothing else to say, go into your act. 
but that that's <sighs> not how I operate. Yeah. But, um, and it's, it's such a style thing for everyone. But, um, but I mean, for me, what I do before every set is normally, you know, you'll have a time you say, or right, if I'm at the club, they say tonight, we just need everybody to do eight minutes. Or if I'm doing a corporate event, they're saying, all right, we want 25 minutes. We want 40 minutes. So what I'll do usually the day of, um, I'll get in my notebook and I will, I know how long in my, I have memorized how long I know how long each joke takes mm-hmm. and I know the order I normally tell them. in. so based on the amount of time I have, I will write out a set list just like a, you know, a band or a musician and write the times of them next to each other. Make sure it adds up to the amount of time that the person's asking me to do and then go from there. And then I can adjust if, if I'm not, if it's going slower or faster than it normally does, I can take something out or add something in. But um, in terms of knowing what order to put things in, it comes down to what we talked about earlier. You know, I have my act, and I've been slowly, with trial and error, um, figuring out what goes best where. So even if I'm doing an eight-minute set, I still kind of know the order things should go in. If I'm telling these four jokes, this is the order I normally tell them. And but okay, if I'm just telling those, does it still make sense? Yes or no? So it's just being really intentional about thinking about that stuff. I think it, it's easy for me to just show up to a show where I'm doing 10 minutes and think, all right, I want to do these four jokes. I'll just do them in the order I normally do and without putting up in extra thought into, okay, but if, if this is now my act for tonight and it's just these four jokes, maybe a different order would work better. Oh, wow. How, okay. So let's say you're into a longer set. How do you keep that straight? Because a lot of communicators yeah. get stuck, like particularly if you're mixing it up, right? If you don't just have one thing that you can pull out night after night after night, Right. How do you not get stuck on stage? How do you stay clear? How, how does that work for you? For me now, I've been telling a lot of this stuff so many times that I just kind of have, I'm in the rhythm. And, and like we talked about, I'm, I have the luxury of getting to do the same act most nights. Whereas a speaker is maybe doing this topic for the first time and it's a lot harder. Yeah. I remember when I was first starting, you know, now if I'm at an open mic, I like to try like two new jokes and then do two jokes that I know will work so that I know I'll at least get laughs. But when you're starting, everything's brand new. So when you're doing a speech or a comedy set that is new to you, every single piece of it is new. And that's when I would get, I'd have to pause or look at my notes or have a panic attack on stage of like, Oh no, where am I again? What was I going to talk about next? Um, the thing that I have realized is when that has happened to me, if I have my phone on the, on the stool recording and then I go back and listen after that pause was never as long as it felt like, yes. yeah, you know, you're right. it's never yeah. as long as it felt like So I'm like, even so if I address it on stage and one thing in, in the comedy world, you can get away with one thing like this, where if I pause, I go, I totally forgot what I was going to say next. I can admit it to the audience. And that's funny. They laugh at that. Hmm. Now, if I do that three times, it's not as funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you can, it, it, it may be a little different in, in preaching or, or speaking, but it, the audience knows what you're doing. They know that you're, up there delivering something that is hard and it's relatable to them. If you say, you know what? I totally just forgot what I, <laughs> what I was about to say. Let me, let me go back. And that almost humanizes comedians, especially for me when I'm uh, when I'm up there just kind of rolling through my jokes and I'm less likely to interact with the crowd, even though I do try to do that. Um, that's a very like in the moment thing to be able to address. And if you're in talking about something really serious in a sermon, it might not be the appropriate thing to do, but but I've learned that just to pause, you can just pretend like you're thinking or you can pretend like for me, I'll just, I think I'll catch myself just laughing into the microphone, like as if I'm laughing at what I just said while I'm thinking. So it kind of seems like I'm still in the moment. So 
I've learned that it's a way, I, when I'm having that panic attack, it's way less noticeable to the audience than I think it is in the moment. Yeah, you know, and now that I think back of other comedians or other communicators or even moments where I've done that, yeah, it, it seems kind of weird in the moment, but it probably looks totally natural and you find your place and away you go. Um, yeah. That's good. What about the thing that, that always gets me, and I've gotten better at it as I've, I've done more speaking rather than just preaching, um, but I always found it difficult to retell a story again and again and still like get the facial expressions right, the <laughs> timing right. Like right. how do you not become bored of your own material or just, you know, there's, there's something that happens in a spontaneous moment that is yeah. really magical. Can you, I've heard Definitely. people, I haven't seen this clip, but like, you know, Chris Rock or something like that, they'll, he looks totally spontaneous, but you can yep. basically cut up 10 of his shows and he's got the exact same body exact language, same. the exact same facial expression, same vocal intonation. And it feels like you're hearing it for the first time. How, yep. how have you navigated that so far? Sure. Well, one of the things that helps me is that I'm not very expressive ever. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm kind of a, I'm kind of more up there. But uh, um, but you're totally right. It it gets very monotonous going through the same thing over. It's hard to have the same enthusiasm telling the same story, even if it's new to the audience. All the time, I'll catch myself going on autopilot and just going through a joke and realizing and feeling, oh no, I'm not even delivering. I have to think of it as, hey, I'm not up here telling jokes. I'm up here performing. Right. I'm a performer. So if I'm performing, I need to be in a character, even if the character is very true to who I am. I can't sell that short by phoning it in and just say, going through the motions and telling the story. I need to be thinking about what I'm saying and delivering it in a way that shows that I'm excited to be telling it, or I'm just as shocked about what I'm about, what I've, what I've revealed as, as I was the first time. And the audience picks up on that. And, um, and you mentioned too that the spontaneity really does come across to the audience because there's moments where, like we talked about earlier, something will happen on stage I didn't plan and it's hilarious. And then I think, okay, good. I'll start doing that every time. And then I can never get it to work again. You know, <laughs> it worked the one time because it truly was a in the moment thing. And then no matter how hard I try to, to duplicate it or replicate it or recreate it, it, uh, it just doesn't work anymore. So there is something to to saying something for the first time or saying something spontaneous that, that definitely adds, adds to the crowd's appreciation of it. But it's one of those things you can chase all you want, but at the end of the day, it's just is what it is. You get different audiences at every show as well. And you probably found that they respond differently. Some will be, you know, right there and you've got them from the first word and others, it must feel like you're spitting bricks or something and they're not paying oh attention. Yeah. How, do you, how do you interact with the audience and what do you do and how do you even keep your head in the game if it's not going well? Sure. Yeah, it's hard. And some nights you show up and you think, and I, already have, I already have a bad attitude. You know, I show up to a, maybe a church where everybody's a little older and I'm thinking, oh man, I just didn't, like, it'll be fine, but I didn't write these jokes for these people, you know? Right. And a lot of most of the time I'm cra I'm surprised and they're awesome and it's great. Um, but every once in a while you get in that situation where whether it's people just weren't really feeling comedy that night or I'm not connecting with them the way I should be. Um, 
sometimes it's like, all right, let's, let's slow down and maybe I'll talk to somebody in the audience. And a lot of times, a lot, a lot of comedians do it. Their act isn't working. They'll start doing what we call crowd work, which is where you start talking. It's like, who here is on a date? And you start talking right. to people. And a lot of audiences, at least in comedy clubs especially, really want that. A lot of people go to a comedy show and expect that. They think, oh, we're going to go and the comedian will make fun of my friend and it's her bachelorette party. So right. we'll be really loud and obnoxious until he talks to us. And sometimes um, sometimes a room has to be, you have to kind of let them know, hey, we're here. This isn't just me saying stuff. We're all here experiencing this. And that can change the whole show. Um, but sometimes it's just a room that it's just not going to happen. And I just have mm -hmm. to deliver my jokes with the same enthusiasm as if it's going well. And maybe, maybe three of those 200 people really are enjoying it. And I don't want to sell, you know, sell myself short to them. And I want them to still be able to enjoy it. Um, it helps for me a lot of times if I am in that situation to lock in with somebody, the person that I see that is enjoying it and almost just deliver straight to them. If, if it's like, all right, well, if you're the one that's enjoying this, I'm just going to tell these for you. And then everybody else can, can enjoy whatever, whatever they want. But, um, what of, and it, it's tough. Sometimes it's crowds at the club and everybody's drunk. Sometimes the show starts yeah. at 10 30 and I don't go up until midnight and everybody's drunk. And that's a whole different crowd, <laughs> you know? Um, and what's different about that crowd? I'm, I'm curious. Well, what I, what I say is uh, most of the time when the crowd's drunk, it's great until it's not <laughs> because they're, they're laughing. They're the best crowd ever. You know, they're having a great time. They're happy. They want to laugh. They're laughing. They're laughing at the wrong parts of jokes sometimes. Um, but then it gets to where they're, you know, they maybe had several more than they even planned to have. And it gets to where they're being disruptive or they just can't follow what you're saying anymore. And then it's like, all right, I feel like I'm, telling jokes to children at this point and you just kind of got to kind of get through it. Um, and sometimes at the clubs you have to kind of make eye contact with the club owner in the back of the room and have somebody removed if they're being too, you know, uh, disruptive and they're keeping everybody else from being able to enjoy themselves. So I, I thankfully haven't had to deal with that very much. There was one time I was at a show and a guy got up and um, unzipped his pants and was going to start peeing in the middle of the comedy club because he's wow. just that drunk. <laughs> And on stage, you're just like, what are you about to, are you peeing? <laughs> it is that kind of stuff. Every, you know, you can't just tell jokes through something like that. You have to address it. That'll make it in, into your act one day, I'm sure. Right. Yeah, so maybe. Well, yeah. I, I actually, I was on stage. Thankfully, when that happened, I had just finished performing and I was <laughs> out watching look over in this guy's. But, um, That's but crazy. every room's different. And I've learned, you know, doing, I travel to churches all over and do different you know, I do volunteer appreciation nights, fundraisers, things like that at all these different denominations of churches. And I've learned like which denominations laugh at jokes, maybe <laughs> a little easier. What, where the, and everybody has a different line for, cause you know, as a comedian, you can you have to play close to the line of what's inappropriate. If you play too far below the line, you're not going to get any big laughs. You certainly don't want to cross the line unless it's barely and then step back over it. But um, you have to figure out where the line is for each crowd. Every crowd, even different crowds at the same comedy club, have a different line for where they're willing to go. Um, and especially in churches is the most extreme version of that. I mean, I'll tell, I tell a lot of the same jokes in different churches, and sometimes it's their favorite joke of the night, and they quote it back to me. And then sometimes they're like, hey, that was an interesting one, you know? <laughs> So it's, it's a lot of learning and, and trying to gauge where that line is towards the beginning of my set so I can kind of 
tiptoe around it for the for the rest but uh the one thing i always say and i probably heard this somewhere but uh you got to cross the line to find the line yeah so sometimes you kind of got to cross it and step back but uh but it's fun to figure out where it is at every at every venue do you think we pulled too far back from the line and we're not talking about some you know egregious moral line here we're just talking about like what's funny, what's not. Because I've noticed that even in my own communication, that there are times where mm-hmm. I practice self-censorship that actually isn't helping anybody. It's like, right. no, you could have gone yeah. further. This was a more radical yeah. point than you made. This, You need to get in their face a little bit more, or you could have been funnier, or you could have been this. Like, How do you navigate that? How do you know where that line sure. is? So th- that's such a good question, and it's it's tough to... You're so right, but it's, it's just tough. Um, I think at the end of the day, my goal is to be respectful of who hired me. Um, so if I'm at a church and they don't want me to do a joke, even though I think the joke is perfectly fine and no one should ever be offended by this joke, at the end of the day, I need to be respectful to where I am. Um, but also, in general, we as Christians, we need to be able to laugh at ourselves. Um, I talk about that in my act. I say, you know, I think that as Christians, a lot of times we look crazy from the outside looking in because we're, cause we're happy and we look crazy. And if we can laugh at ourselves, it helps bring that wall down and opens up conversations with people outside of our religion. And then I say, so keep that in mind as I tell these next jokes. And then I tell a bunch of jokes about mission trips <laughs> and, all, and all that stuff. I say, uh, I always tell them I'm when I'm at the comedy clubs, you know, I'm, I'm clean. A lot of times I'm the only clean comedian on a lineup, try to be a light in a dark place. And then I come to your church and I can be the darkness in a light place. <laughs> and that's a good line. But that really is how it feels a lot of times. It's, it's so weird. But it, the censorship in the overall media is more than it's ever been. And you got guys like Dave Chappelle saying, we're the last comedians. We're the last kind of free speech because we don't answer to anyone and we can kind of say what we want. And then anytime people come in and say, well, you can't say that. It's, it's, it's restrictive, but. When it comes to church stuff, I always try to be really respectful of wherever I am. Um, But at the end of the day, I think we need to be able to laugh at ourselves. And I I always hope that that people will give me a little little bit of freedom to explore that. Hmm. You've got a couple of... Oh, by the way, I just just want to add this one comment. Uh, One of the exercises I've had for a while is we've used your dad's messages now for years at our church. And so I will sit through multiple showings of something on video. So it's mm-hmm. a pre-recorded piece. We're not doing a live sync with North Point. I right. am amazed because often as a communicator, I'll get up and I'm like, man, I was terrible. Like nobody laughed. Nobody seemed to engage. The congregation was dead in this service. And the next one, it went a lot better. But I will watch versions of your dad's messages play through sometimes three, four, five, six services. So I'll watch them mm. with multiple audiences. He's exactly you do, you do the that, same. You do that voluntarily. That's, that's well, that's I get great. paid, but... Um, <laughs> I, it was mandatory for me growing up. <laughs> yeah, you didn't have much of a choice, did you? <laughs> but, you know, you take the communicator variable out of it and audiences can be entirely... They can engage completely differently with identical oh, yeah. content. And so you, th- I've, you know, it's always important to own it and say, okay, what could I do with that? But sometimes the crowd just wasn't laughing. The crowd just wasn't leaning in. The crowd just wasn't that interested. And other times they're eating out of your hand and it's exactly the same message. Yeah. 
and at the end of the day, you have to think, okay, well, for me, I'm like, all right, well, did I write a joke that works really well for half of the people? Because that's good, but it's not good enough. I need to write jokes that are, that are and at the end of the day, you have, there's, you have your audience and some people are going to think your style of comedy is funny and some people aren't. Um, but it, it is weird when, like you said, the same content gets different results and, I think I, I admire what you guys do as pastors and, and communicators, because for me, it's really easy to know how I'm doing, you know, yeah. Yeah. it never has to wonder if it's going well or if it's connecting because there's this audible response and this immediate feedback. And when you're on stage, I, I know that you guys as communicators learn to read the crowd, but it's so much more subtle to be able to yeah. tell if are people picking up on this or people paying attention but it, it helps me a lot when I've told a joke 200 times and it works great. And then one time it doesn't work, then I can kind of take some of the blame off of myself and say, okay, well, I have enough data to know that that joke is good. Um, yeah. But if it's a newer joke and it's batting 500, then I'm thinking, all right, well, this joke clearly isn't done if I'm only getting what I want half of the time from it. Um, cause sometimes you just create a great audience and they're with you and they're loving everything you say. You can do no wrong. They're laughing at stuff you're coming up with in the moment. And then sometimes you get an audience that just doesn't get what you're doing. So it, um, it's so dependent on that. But at the end of the day, my goal is to write jokes where I can get any audience at least engaged and following along and, and, and chuckling, even if they're in a terrible mood. Any other tips and tricks on writing or delivery before we... I got a couple more questions I want to ask you. I mean, I think what we already talked about, I think for me, making sure I'm staying in the moment and not just reciting mm -hmm. stuff is so important. I've learned to use my eyes more. Um, when I first started, I was just so about the words and making sure I say the right words. And now I'm trying to become a better performer using my hands better, um, but without being distracting. And um, I've learned that for a comedian... Of course, so the timing and the pauses are so important. And um, and I've learned that in those pauses, if I can use my eyes and my face, that helped me a lot, even if it's just subtle. What does that mean? Like, how do you use your eyes and your face? Like for me, I'm telling, I tell one joke now where I talk about babysitters I had growing up. And I talk about one of them. Um, and this, I tell this really creepy story about stuff. She, she would make us look at our feet. And she'd be like, guys, one day your feet will do this again and your feet will be bigger than mine. And then I just pause and I kind of look at the crowd like, you know, what? <laughs> like, and they kind of open my eyes real big and kind of move them side to side like, what in the world? And that kind of gets a laugh. If, they, if, if I'm in a room where I'm well lit enough for them to be able to see my face or if I'm on a screen and they can see my eyes and face doing things, responding, I'm kind of responding to things that I've said. And then that kind of lets them know my attitude towards what I just said. And a lot of times that kind of gets a laugh in itself. So that's something I'm not good at, but I'm working on um, that I've been thinking about a lot and trying to be intentional about. Um, another writing thing, um, I need to get, I've, I've always heard that people will get great results from doing the morning pages thing. First thing when you wake up, just write on two, write one or two pages, three pages. Um, just stream of consciousness. I have not tried that. That's something I want to get into now that I'm full-time comedy, try to get in a rhythm of doing that kind of stuff. But, um, but at the end of the day, for me, it's just always being in that mindset of what I'm observing today. I can translate into material. Everything that happens to me is relatable. Um, so kind of trying to look at the world through the lens of how can I make this funny? 
you have a, a father and a grandfather who are well known for their communication styles. What did you learn from your dad and your granddad about communication, delivery, content, all those things? Sure. Well, for first things first, I just hope that one day I grow into my, the voice of my granddad. He has the coolest voice in the world. Every time I talk to him, I'm like, man, I hope that I sound like that one day. <laughs> but um, I tell people all the time, I think that growing up in church is an enormous advantage for anyone that wants to communicate down the road, whether it's in a business way or comedy or preach themselves. Because every week, you know, I was sitting through three services of, of some kind, listening to communicators. And even if it was subconscious, I was learning what is good that a communicator does, what's bad, what's annoying as an audience when the communicator does it, when a transition is weird, when um, timing is off. So I think you just kind of learn a lot of the do's and don'ts just from observing public speaking regularly. And the church is the easiest way to do that. So I think uh, I think preachers and comedians have a lot in common. I know Chris Rock says all the time that he loves watching preachers. Um, and how they communicate to do stand up, and I think that there's a lot to to learn both directions. But um, from my dad and my granddad specifically, my dad, um, you know, I grew up in the same house with him, so I had a little more of a line of sight on how he prepares for sermons and all that kind of stuff. And and I mean, he lo- he's locked in his office all of Saturday afternoon. I mean, just preparing. So I, I think I really learned that if you want to be an excellent communicator, preparation is not. You don't just go up there and wing it. Um, preparation makes a huge difference and he's got an outline for every sermon and just seeing how much work he put into it every week definitely taught me about, Hey, being a good speaker, isn't just talent. It's a lot of preparation and a lot of hard work and a lot of saying no to things on Saturday afternoons or for me saying no to things on days when I have important shows that night. So definitely, definitely all of that I've learned from them. Hmm. Yeah, I'm curious. I've never asked your dad this, but does he rehearse out loud or is that more of uh, like just he's in his study and I know the the Saturday routine, he's talked about that pretty publicly. Right. Um, you would rehearse your jokes out loud. You've said that. I would and I don't do that as much anymore now that I'm more comfortable hmm. um, with my jokes. I'll write them down. I will try to maybe when I'm driving to the show it's nice to have said something out loud, I think, so that when you're in the moment, it's not your first try saying this thing. Um, so I always like to do it a few times. I'm not as reliant on it as I was when I was first starting. But I know for my dad, I never heard any voices coming from the office as he was <laughs> preparing yeah, I didn't on think Saturday night. I he did. That I don't, was my, I don't, my I guess. I don't think he does that. He may, he may just hide it really well. But I think Whisper. for him, I know it's all about outlines. He's not, I don't yeah. think he's typing out things word for word. It's all about outlines. What are his main points? And he's working on his slides now that he uses like, you know, every Sunday he's got his TV on stage with him with all his yeah. slides and main takeaways. No, that's good. Uh, what is your granddad? Jeff Henderson wants to know this. I asked him, what should I ask you? <laughs> Stanley? He said, what does your granddad think about you as a stand-up comedian? Oh man, it's uh, it was really funny when I I think I can't remember when I told him the first time that I was doing that. I think he his first instinct was to be worried <laughs> because I don't think that his impression of stand up comedy. I don't think he'd ever heard you know. I don't think he'd heard many about many clean comedians. So he was picturing this awful comedy club Don R- Rickles <laughs> right. type stuff and uh, 
And so, and I love Don Rickles, but that's another thing. Um, but, uh, so he was always saying, he was like, so how's the comedy going? He was real, he was real wanted to ask me about it, but he was kind of like, what is he doing? Um, and he goes, can I come see you at the comedy club? And I said, Oh, I don't think you should be seen there. <laughs> um, but, um, but it was great. He, uh, they had me come do the in touch ministries Christmas party this year. So I got to perform right. for him and his whole, uh, ministry. Uh, and I was, it's probably the most nervous I've ever been aside from when I was first starting to do a, to do a show like that. And, uh, Thankfully, it went really well, and uh, he laughed, right. and he kind of after that he kind of understood. He was like, "Oh, that's great." He seemed very <laughs> relieved <laughs> afterwards, but he's been he's been very supportive. And um, one of these days, I'll get him to come out to the Laughing Skull Lounge and <laughs> right. and take some pictures with him in uh, in front of all the inappropriate posters on the wall. <laughs> uh, rumor also has it, speaking of Jeff Henderson, that uh, he and his team turned over the Gwinnett Church Twitter feed to you during the Super Bowl. What are what are some some of the fun things you did with it? And then any tips <laughs> for churches on how that we're so serious all the time, right? Like how, right, how do you, yeah. what would you say, guys, be a little more playful here or what, what advice would you have? Sure. Well, uh, it's funny Jeff told you about that. He, Jeff and Gwinnett Church really, in general, do an amazing job of being so plugged into their community. So Jeff approached me, I guess it was two years ago, or I guess it was a year ago, um, about the Super Bowl. And he said, hey, we would love to have you come and just live tweet the Super Bowl, just do funny tweets and um, try to get some attention on our Twitter. And, and you know, we're just going to try to be funny and appropriate and all that stuff. And I said, all right, well, I'll do my best. I can be funny. I'll do my best to be appropriate. Um, so he... That night, I think I watched the first time I ever watched the Super Bowl by myself <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, with like a work mindset. But um, we, we were kind of, he, he was doing the same thing. So I would text him stuff before I posted it. I'll say, hey, is this okay? And usually he said yes a couple times. He was like, eh, maybe not say that. <laughs> um, but it was fun. I think we ended up doing like 15 or so tweets, just kind of funny stuff about things that were happening in the game as they happened. And we got a lot of response. And uh, he asked me to do it again this year. I was, I think I had a show or I was out of town, so I couldn't do it, but he did it. So he, and he did a good job. I went back and looked at him. He did a good job kind of doing the same thing. But, but at the end of the day, social media is such a huge part of our culture now. And it's all about figuring out how to leverage it with whatever you're doing. I mean, for me, so many of um, the successful comedians right now, whether they're they're Tim Hawkins and John Christ, or they're guys that are on Netflix doing this secular stuff. Um, they, most of the ones that are successful have found a way to keep their audience engaged, even when they haven't heard them or seen them live in a while. So for a lot of them, it's this, it's a podcast. It's saying, Hey, I'm only going to come to your city once a year, but every week you can hear me talk about what's going on and interview people and stay connected with me. A lot of people like John, is doing, you know, he's doing Instagram stories every day. People feel like they're with him all day. They feel like they know him so well because he is carrying them in his pocket. So any way that the church or your business or your just yourself as a speaker can can keep your audience engaged throughout the year, not just when you see them or have a connection with them, the more they're going to be your fan or your supporter. Yeah, and you use Insta that way too. Your Insta stories show up from time to time. At it, I uh, I'm trying to figure out which which platform works well for me to kind of accomplish that goal that I was talking about. I don't know yeah. if it's that right now. I'm most active on Instagram, so I'm trying to do stories and funny stuff, and also showing where I'm gonna be performing and stuff. But um, 
but yeah, and, and it's changing all the time. There's new platforms and, and ways to connect with people every day. So it's about, it's about keeping track of that and staying on top of it and finding out what works for you. Great. Well, Andrew, I would be remiss in uh, in not going here before we wrap up. But, you know, often preachers' kids, they get an interesting reputation sometimes. Uh, <laughs> any uh, highlights or like moments before we wrap up about uh, growing up in the home of a famous pastor of a large church? Sure. No, I say this all the time and it, it sounds like this would be something my dad told me to say, but he absolutely didn't. Um, it helped us a lot, I say, because my dad grew up as the son of a pastor of a large church. So he, he really had a good feel for what that's like and did, I think a really good job of, of taking a lot of that pressure off of us and giving us a lot of freedom to kind of be who we wanted to be and not just make sure we're representing the family and the church as well as possible. There's definitely a pressure that, um, that you feel when you're a preacher's kid, especially if your dad has, you know, a large audience. I think a lot of times that pressure causes preachers kids to run one of two directions. And the first one is to run away from church. Say, All right, well, this is too hard. I can't live up to this unfair <laughs> expectation that's been put on me since I was born. So I'm just going to run the other direction. And then there's the other side of it is like, all right, well, I'm just going to, if this is my life, I'm just going to lean into it really hard and be the best church poster boy I can be. And both of those are probably unhealthy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so I think my dad did a really good job of giving us the freedom to not have to choose one of those directions. Um, and that came through, hey, maybe it's okay if you skip church to go play your baseball game. We'll let that decision be up to you. And and uh, I just could really not be more thankful for the way that, that they handled that. I think I think it, it goes without, there's no way to avoid. I always felt pressure to, to be good. Um, and I think one of the things I learned or realized later is that a lot of times I made good decisions for the wrong reasons. I was, you know, I would make a, I would make a moral choice because I wanted to represent my family. Well, maybe not as much thinking, well, I also need to represent God well as a Christian. Yeah. Um, so those lines can, can kind of be were, were blurred for me sometimes, but at the end of the day, the result is good. And as long as my relationship with Jesus is, is strong, I, I'm going to be okay. But it's tough. I mean, and I, I get why so many kids get pushed hard in one direction or the other, but I'm just really thankful the way my parents handled it. Any idea why you decided as an adult, you're in your mid twenties now, like, you know, but why you didn't go the other direction, why you decided to commit your life to Christ? Sure. I think, um, I just had really great friends. I think when it comes down to it from early, from when I was homeschooled, uh, my best friend Johnny was also homeschooled. So we would just hang out every day and we were best friends since we were, gosh, probably fourth, fifth grade, probably fourth grade. Um, and in high school, I had a small group that we had our church small group, but we also had a group of five of us that would meet with, uh, my, uh, our, this leader, Jason Carr that, um, runs an organization called legacy now. And he would meet with us once a week and we had a discipleship group, accountability group, and we just would not let each other, stray. Anytime one of us had an opportunity or, you know, feeling like, Hey man, we should ask out this girl that we probably is not a good idea. Like we wouldn't let each other make those decisions. So it really just came down to extreme accountability for me. And also my parents just making it, making it not stressful. I think. I love that. That's, uh, that's great. And, uh, knowing your dad as I do and, uh, met your mom a few times as well. Like they, yeah. they're, they're just 
you know, they're the real deal. They really I are. I like them. Man. <laughs> Andrew, this has been incredible. You've helped me think through a lot of stuff I've always been curious about. It's just exciting to see you at this point in your life doing what you love to do and really that it's coming as much of a surprise to you as anything. That's uh, oh, that's a lot sure. of fun. I think to myself all the time, I can't believe this is happening. So I'm I'm having a great time just waiting for something to go horribly wrong any day now. <laughs> I think you got a great future. People will want to connect with you on social. So, uh, and tell us about your website too, where they can find you. Particularly, there'll be a lot of people who listen to this who want to book you as well. Oh, great. I hope so. Um, yeah, Instagram, I'm at Andrew W. Stanley. And then my website is andrewstanleycomedy.com. And there's a, there's a page on there where you can send me a, an email through the website if you're interested in booking me or learning more about comedy or just want to talk. Um, would love to I travel all over doing shows at churches and fundraisers and clubs and anywhere, anywhere that'll let me tell jokes. I w- would love to come. <laughs> That's great. Andrew, thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks so much, Carrie, for having me. This is a lot of fun. Man, I love that conversation and I sure love Andrew and I want you to know I'm cheering for you and man, you make us laugh like (laughs) like good on you, dude. Uh, I love seeing young leaders really step into their passion. Hey, we have transcripts, we have show notes and so much more. So you can head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 259. You'll find everything there or just go to leadlikeneverbefore.com and search Andrew Stanley and you'll find the show notes right there as well. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. Next week, uh, we are back with a fresh episode, but we actually have two this week. And actually on Thursday, we're going to drop a new one with Ruth Haley Barton, who talks to us about how busyness tends to ruin the soul of driven leaders and how to make time for rest. Um, I will be taking notes (laughs) on that one because that's a passion point for me. Here's an excerpt. Yeah. Well, I write about my own journey with Sabbath in the book Sacred Rhythms um, because it was it's really been almost the last holdout for me. Um, and it was in my early 40s after I had, you know, been practicing other disciplines for a long time. And I just thought Sabbath was too hard. I had put it in the too hard file. Um, my husband is a banker and his bank was open on Sundays. Right. My children were all athletes. And so they were all in sports on Sundays. I was in ministry. And so Sunday was the busiest day for me. So I, it was, it was just a can of worms. I just didn't want to open. And so I just sort of left it outside of my awareness in the too hard file. At the same time though, as I was recognizing these dangerous levels of depletion, my longing for Sabbath was growing. And in fact, when I would read books like Wayne Mueller's book, Sabbath, I would literally weep at the practices that he would describe that were so gentle and so restful and gave us ways to practice trusting God and gave us ways to practice savoring the God's good gifts in our lives and creating space for the soul to come out and to say true things. So that's coming up in just a couple of days. And if you subscribe, you get it all automatically. Remember, Push Pay Summit, man, time is ticking. And we would love to see you there May 22nd, 23rd in Dallas, along with Patrick Lencioni, Cheryl Batchelder. I'll be keynoting and it's going to be a great couple of days. Head on over to pushpay.com forward slash summit and use the coupon code CARRYN and you will get in for $89 per person. That's almost half off the regular early bird pricing. So we'd love to see you there. I will see you again on Thursday. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. 
Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.